Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is, in many respects, the text that is the basis of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, the writer is elaborating on this text and on some other Old Testament texts about Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Psalm 110 is what we call a messianic psalm. That That is, it is about Messiah. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord bless the reading of his word. That text, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That text is the text that's quoted more than once this in the book of Hebrews for a few weeks well maybe a few months and uh, this is a big element of the writer of the Hebrews in his case for Jesus and you think why does he need to make a case for Jesus to Christians Well, I would say this. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for coming up on 60 years. I know I don't look that old. I became a Christian at a very young age. And I need a case for Jesus. In fact, I think you could make an argument that the Christian worship service, this gathering we are attending at the moment around the Lord's table, this gathering is a gathering for us to hear again a case for Jesus. Because here's something about us human beings. 
we forget what we heard last Sunday. I was at a meeting yesterday, and we were to everyone was congratulating, and not everyone, but some guys were congratulating me about One of them said, yeah, I learned a lot, and then I forgot a lot of it. I'm the preacher, and I forgot a lot of it. Every week, I go back and I say, now, where was I? Every week. Here's the thing. The gospel is good news. Good news that we need announced to us all the time. In fact, I believe that heaven will be the experience of the enjoyment of God's good grace in Christ by the Spirit in all eternity. That what we will be doing is exploring the greatness of the good news. And we will never find the end. It will always be slightly better than it was yesterday, although there's not any more nights and days, so I don't know how that works. But there's, it's always going to go, we're always going to be living eternally in the O oh, of the gospel. It is the purpose of human history. The greatness of God in his grace toward rebels in the person of Christ discovered by the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. I didn't actually mean this morning to rant about how we all need to hear the gospel all the time, but there you go. And what we're studying in the book of Hebrews is the writer of the book of Hebrews writing to a church of Hebrew Jewish Christians because they were about to experience trouble for Christ. And some of them were going, hmm, maybe we should just shut up about Jesus for a while. Even instead of having church, we'll go back to synagogue. The gathering of Israel without Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is utterly appalled by such talk. He, he can't even imagine it. How someone who really knows Christ, could possibly even consider such a thing. And so he's saying, you know Christ, right? You know Christ, right? Don't you know Christ? And he gets to talking about Melchizedek in order to do this. And we're all like, Melchizedek? In the whole Bible, we've only heard of Melchizedek twice until now. Once when he shows up, that's what we talked about last Sunday. And once in the psalm we read. Those are the only two places where Melchizedek's even mentioned apart from this in the book of Hebrews, where it becomes a really big deal. 
So let's review a little bit what we've learned so far. We've noticed in chapter 6 that Jesus is our forerunner, our hope forerunner. Behind, it's the strangest term, our forerunner behind the veil. Now, since, well, we're not Hebrews, but Hebrews know what he's talking about. The veil is the giant, heavy, totally opaque barrier in the temple of God between us and the holy place, the actual throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant. No one can go in there. Once a year, one guy, the high priest can go in there. He's got to take something with a sacrifice. He's got to kind of go, here's the sacrifice. And there's a large preparation for this. There's sacrifices. There's a sacrifice made for him. He kind of has to sneak behind the veil on the Day of Atonement. Well, in the book of Hebrews, we have been told repeatedly already, and we're only halfway through, that we can go in there willy-nilly, as we say. What? And that is what he says at the end of chapter 6 when he says, Jesus is our forerunner behind the veil. That somehow Jesus, the man, a human being, can go in there and lead us in there also. And according to chapter 6, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, is a hope which enters behind the veil. Already, he said in chapter 4, draw near to the throne. And he calls it the throne of grace. You know, there was a time when a guy was in a procession that included the earthly version of the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was being returned after Israel had lost it. They were bringing it back. And they didn't do it right. They put it on a cart, which, oh my goodness, you're not supposed to put it on a cart. It's only to be carried by priests. Only to be carried by priests, and they carry it without touching it. They have these poles that they put through some loops on the cart or on the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God in the temple of God. They put these poles through and they carry it without touching it, except this time everybody forgot to read. And so they just put it in the back of a pickup. Well, 
the ancient Israel equivalent of a pickup, an ox cart. Not even a fancy cart. And they're rolling it in to town, back to Jerusalem. And they hit a bump, and it goes, boop. And the guy goes, boop. And he put his hand on the throne of God and dropped dead. This is not a place where you belong. But Jesus, Jesus makes you belong there. He is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is not like those high priests. He's a different kind of high priest to do that. Well, in chapter 7, we're going to read about this, but, oh yeah, I was telling you what we've learned so far. So far, we've learned he's our forerunner behind the veil. He, we follow him into the presence of God. He is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we learned last Sunday, is a priest of God Most High. He appears out of nowhere in the life of Abraham, and just as quickly as he appears, he disappears. He has no father or mother. He has no record of his death. He, has, he represents eternity in this way. And he is the priest of God Most High who blesses Abram, who is the receiver of the promise of God. I will make you a nation, and out of that nation, I will bless the nations. And right after he meets Melchizedek, God formalizes this as a holy covenant, an unconditional, one-sided promise. I will. And that's what the scripture is talking about when it says he swore. He swore by himself. The rest of us swear by him. Who's he swear to? Himself as high as it goes. And so he says, you're a priest. He says to Messiah, announced by David, you're a priest, <clears throat> according to the order of Melchizedek. So, here's the thing about that we're going to get to in chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is, in a, which is king of peace. So he's king of righteousness, king of peace. Uh, remind you of anyone? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Melchizedek is today a priest to all those who are in any way described as sons of Abraham. Because he was a priest to Abraham, he is a priest to us to this day. And Christ is the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, that makes the priesthood of Melchizedek meaningful. 
Well, Melchizedek, where were we? Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, priests, who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's telling you that Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, the priests of Israel. But in that case, one receives of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. He's making a deal between the fact that the priests of Israel are mortal and the Melchizedek is in one sense or another immortal. He's a priest forever. Well, <clears throat> so to speak, though, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father, Abraham, when Melchizedek met Abraham. We're going to talk about this, don't worry. <laughs> now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Israel, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if these priests could do everything that needed doing, why do we need another Melchizedek priest? That's the question. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there also takes place a change of law for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, the Lord Jesus, was descended from Judah, not Levi, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Can't be priests in Israel. And this is clearer still if another... <laughs> does this feel clear yet? <laughs> this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement or uh, natural descent, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from the psalm. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Oh, that's going to be a big idea here in the book of Hebrews. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Oh, I'm so glad he got to that. We draw near to God through this. That really motivates me to understand all that we just read. It's through these things that we draw near to God. It's through these things that we have access they did not have. The access that is life. Jesus said this, this is life that they may know you 
the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't know God in Christ, you are still dead. And the only way to be alive is to know God, is this access that we are talking about. The thing that Jesus died to provide. So, Jesus, Melchizedekian priesthood, accomplishes what the Levitical priests did not accomplish. They had a system for atoning for sin where one guy went went into the throne room of God once a year, once a year. This is a perpetual system if nothing changes. That's why it needed to change. The, it, it, they, they're going to have to do it again next year. And meanwhile, they're going to have to make thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices day after day after day after day after day and again. person, non-priest, ever could get in there and live. So, what Christ accomplishes, these priests could not accomplish. They weren't even designed for it. It wasn't the point of that priesthood. Melchizedek, so here's the case. I'm just going to lay it out. Uh, verse by verse as it goes through this text. It's a, it's a logical step-by-step argument for why it matters that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not any other kind of priest. In verses 4 through 10, this is the thing. Melchizedek was a priest to Abraham, not Israel. And so, because he's a priest to Abraham, He is a priest to the priests that would come from Abraham. And so the Levitical priests are in Abraham when Abraham meets Melchizedek. Their priesthood is only possible because of the blessing of God mediated through Melchizedek to Abraham. Because this is how God institutes this promise that they are the fulfillment of in one sense. So they were in Abraham when Abraham paid his tithe to Melchizedek, and this is what the text said. In that way, they paid tithes to Melchizedek, and this demonstrates that Melchizedek is the greater priest. That's kind of the point of all that. Melchizedek is a greater priest. He precedes and supersedes their priesthood. And then in the middle, we get this, uh, this part of the argument in verse 11. Now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the Melchizedekian priesthood? 
In other words, if they could do everything that needed to be done, why do we need a Melchizedekian priest? And yet, David says in Psalm 10, Messiah is a Melchizedekian priest. This is kind of out of the blue again in the Psalms. You have David announcing that God has sworn to Messiah, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So apparently we need a Melchizedekian priest in the person of Messiah. By the way, well known, Messiah must be a descendant of David and therefore of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And so under the law of Moses, he couldn't qualify to be a priest. And yet, David himself announces that Messiah is a priest, but not a Levitical priest, a Melchizedek priest. So this indicates the need for a priesthood of a higher order than the Levites. There's something that must be done that they don't do. What's that? We've already said, but we'll elaborate. And then from verse 12 to verse 19, that's what he does. He said the priesthood, this priesthood of Melchizedek precedes and supersedes the Levites. This indicates the operation of a law that precedes and supersedes the law of Moses. There's a law, there's a covenant, there's a God swearing, there's a promise made that also imposes some obligation. There's a law that is a priest that comes before and is greater than the law of Moses and the priesthood under the law of Moses. Jesus, the writer says, is from Judah, the king tribe, and so not qualified for the priesthood under Moses. Jesus' priesthood, he says, it's very interesting, Jesus' priesthood arises, uh, let me just find it here, Yeah, in verse 16, Melchizedek, there's another priest, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. That means of uh, natural descent. It's not because of his family or tribe that he's qualified. It is on the, instead according to the power of an indestructible life. It's because he has an eternal nature that he receives this priesthood, the same as the Melchizedekian priesthood, also of an eternal nature. And so he, uh, he gets this priesthood not through the law, a temporal law designed to uh, rule in the life of the nation Israel, but through the, his own nature, his eternal nature, his indestructible life, 
You might recall from the book of John, Jesus said, God has granted that the Son have life in himself. As God has life in himself, it's just an aspect of his nature. So, the declaration, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, not because of a temporal law of natural descent, but because of an eternal nature. And so the man, Jesus, is the eternal one made flesh. And because he is that, he can serve in this place. Well, he says then, the former commandment is set aside. Weak and useless. I'm like, ugh. He's calling the law of Moses weak and useless. And I think we should be careful uh, because it is the word of God we're talking about here, the law of Moses. What does he mean, weak and useless? He means it couldn't do what needs to be done. It was not designed to actually deal with the whole problem. Christ is the one who deals with the whole problem, and without Christ, it can't be dealt with. And the priesthood of the, under the law of Moses was not designed for this purpose and could not be because it's not embodied in the eternal Son of God. So the former commandment is set aside. It simply does not do. It was never intended to do what really needs to be done. What needs to be done? says here, the law made nothing perfect. You know, they had all these sacrifices in the law. Day after day after day after day after day after day. It just sacrifice upon sacrifice. It's sometimes hard to imagine how they grew enough animals for all these sacrifices. Well, what did those sacrifices do? What was accomplished by those sacrifices? And the writer of Hebrews will elaborate on this further. But in short, what was accomplished by those sacrifices was something like escaping God's judgment for the time being. That's what they did. For the time being. You had to have another one next year or tomorrow. And the problem is the problem of sin and death. And so it doesn't actually perfect anything. And that word perfect means complete. The job, the job of making people really acceptable to God. People who are sinners, which is the universal condition of people. How do we become acceptable to God? Well, we didn't become acceptable to God by the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. No one did. They covered 
for now. And all of those sacrifices, here's their real, real depth of meaning, they're all a little testimony that says, don't judge us, Christ is coming. God looks at those sacrifices and it's like a little remind. It's not like God needs a reminder, but it's like a reminder that says, Christ is coming. Don't kill them. It's kind of scary. But there's a type of priesthood that supersedes that priesthood. That priesthood did what it did, but it didn't do all that needed to be done. That's the important thing here, and that's the case for Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He's saying the Melchizedekian priesthood that preceded and supersedes the Levitical priesthood actually dealt with the problem. So the former commandment is set aside. It's weak and useless. It doesn't do what it's what needs to be done. The law didn't make any perfect anything perfect. The law does not actually restore wholeness. That's what that's what the word perfect means. The the restoration of wholeness. So now I'm a human being that is actually what human beings were designed to be, that is the creature that because we know God, we exhibit God's nature, character, action, command, kingdom in the world that he made. That's what he meant when he said, in his likeness, according to his image, we, we are like him and so we reflect him. And that's whole humanity. And when we collapsed in ourselves, we cut ourselves off from God, and then we're dead. And so what needs to be done is a restoration of our fellowship with God, which restores our wholeness and makes us real reflections of who he is into the world he made for us to do this in. And so... The law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, it did what it did, but it didn't do that. It didn't restore access to anyone who is in Christ, who believes the sacrifice of Christ does. Oh, say that again. The sacrifice of Christ does. And of course, this is God's intention from the beginning. In fact, if you read the whole New Testament, you'll find out it was God's intention since before the beginning. He wanted to tell this whole story before he started telling any story at all. And the story is that in Christ, we become whole. Again, and so he, his conclusion here is the law made nothing perfect, 
on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. A better hope through which we draw near to God. In Christ, the hope we have in Christ, in that hope we draw near to Christ. This is the hope that is announced by David when he says, you, God has sworn and he won't change his mind, you're a priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever. Forever. The hope provided by the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the priest of God most high, who is Jesus, who is also the sacrifice of that priest. The hope through which we draw near to God, which is where he started this whole conversation about Melchizedek. Christ is our forerunner behind the veil. This is the new covenant. This is... Melchizedek brought bread and wine. And so when we come to the table to receive the bread and wine brought by our Melchizedek, we are repeating to ourselves this great hope, this absolutely best news that in him we have we. We have become children of God and we can sit on God's lap and enjoy his embrace and not fear his judgment in Christ. And so we have the new covenant hope of a transformed heart. You remember all that new covenant talk. Maybe you don't. It's in the Old Testament where God promises that in the new covenant, he will write his law on our hearts. We won't need the book. We'll pour out his spirit into our hearts. This is the transformational uh, new thing that's in the new covenant that is the covenant ministered by the Melchizedek priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a new covenant hope of a transformed heart not the old covenant hope of escaping God's wrath for the time being. It's a better hope. It's not that that system was hopeless, but you know, its hope was in this hope. And if Christ never comes, none of those for the time being sacrifices would have done anyone any good if Christ doesn't come. If we don't actually go all the way there, which is what he does. So when we come to the table, <clears throat> we come to the Passover celebration of the sacrifice of Jesus. We come to the blood and the body of Christ, the bread and the wine given by our Melchizedek, just as Melchizedek brought bread and wine. Why would that be in there? Why would the Bible mention that? Except it's one more connection to the Lord Jesus. 
Well, and so we come. Now, when we come to this table, we don't get saved by eating this and drinking this. We remember that we're saved by eating this and drinking this. And we eat and drink the bread and the wine as a way of saying, yes, I'll have that. Thank you. Here's something you don't do. Bring anything. You know, when you go to dinner at someone's house, you always ask, what can I bring? Sometimes they say, well, you could bring this. Sometimes, you know, we're bringing stuff to the Lord and he's like, ah, yeah, thanks. Deal with that later. You don't need anything. It's kind of insulting, actually, to bring something when you don't, when you're not supposed to. Because what is this? This is a celebration of being provided for. And that's all. Now, when I receive the body and the blood of Christ again, when I partake in this remembrance, the scripture says we remember the Lord's death until he comes. This is uh, what has he done and what does he promise to do thing. And so we are saying, yes, I will have Christ when we receive the communion. So let me pray. And then we're going to sing a song and then we'll do just that. Lord, Help us to bear in mind the greatness of your goodness in Christ. Lord, thank you for the word of God. For these details that just elevate the nature of your grace to us in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, that we won't forget, that we'll remember, that we'll practice reflecting this love in the world, that you will help us to grow in practicing your love in the world, that we will come to know it even a little more as we do that. Lord, we thank you for the bread and the wine, for the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.